Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Hello, welcome to Bible Interact Presents. I'm Christy Anderson. Visit my website at ForItIsWritten.com. Again, that's ForItIsWritten.com for more information on this and other teachings. Last time we were discussing the first part of a two-part series on every offering with salt. And we were analyzing Leviticus 2.13 when we finished, where it um, gives the command to offer salt with every grain offering, every korban. Now, the in last program, we looked at the nature of salt. Just in general, we studied it a little bit. We looked at how it is a necessary for life and it, the preservation of life and all of its natural properties in the real, just in everyday life. Then we looked at it in the more metaphoric sense, how it's used also to imply a covenant and covenant making, how it is equivalent with a blood covenant and interchangeable in its nature and in its symbolism, um, particularly in the tabernacle. And so as we analyzed Leviticus 2.13, we saw that the important chiastic structure of that verse pointed to the phrase in the middle that says, so that the salt covenant of your God shall not be lacking or cease from your grain offering. And that was the central thrust of um, the commandment. So it's, it's sandwiched between commandments to always have salt with the grain offering. It tells you, then it tells you again, but it gives you the purpose in the middle so that it's not lacking so that you have salt and it. And so it doesn't tell you why, but we are able to deduce it through understanding how the metaphors are working and understanding its nature. And if we were from living in the time of the ancient Near East, this would be much easier for us because we would understand its significance in terms of its biblical and symbolic uses. So as we continue today, we're going to try to um, wrap this up. We want to understand the from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, when you brought the korban or the animal or grain offering even, even when you brought the grain offering, you think you're not entering into a blood covenant because you're just bringing grain. Um, you might be, you might be um, tempted to think that if you're just looking at it from a Western perspective. But as a, from the ancient Near Eastern perspective, you would realize if you had to have salt with the grain offering, then the covenant, the two becoming one, the joining of life, that permanent unchanging covenant idea is, is central. Um, so you're not going to be covenanting, covenanting with the king of Israel um, or you're not going to be bringing him a grain offering unless you are of the understanding that I am making a, a covenant here. I am entering into a salt covenant, which is equivalent to a blood covenant. Now, with regard to the Korban offering and this idea of the animal, we want to kind of establish the precedent for why um, the grain and the animal 
sacrifices, um, what they're representing and that symbolism and why they are interchangeable a little more. So the animal obviously has a body or flesh that is um, sacrificed or uh, has to die and in order to acquire the blood. Now, so the body or flesh is going to represent the death symbolically and physically. And the blood then of the animal is the life. And so we know the scripture says the life is in the blood. Now, when we when it comes to the grain offering, then we'll see that the, there's bread and what we call, we, we often even call the, the bread flesh. And we interchange those metaphorically with the grain. So grain makes bread and bread and flesh and grain then are all intertwined in their understanding, um, metaphorically speaking. So the grain then is representing, like the animal body flesh, the bread or the uh, death element that's represented. Then we have the animal um, side of the blood. Uh, just like the animal blood, we're going to have salt, which is interchangeable. And so salt, since it has the same function and interchangeability, it will represent the life. So if you didn't add the salt to the grain offering, the picture would be one of only death. You just have the death, the, the flesh side. You'd be offering just the flesh. You would have not the life equivalent um, balance there with the symbolism, with the offering. And so that makes it much more significant and understandable to us. Now, how do we tie in grain with death? How am I tying that in? Well, if we look at John 12, 24, the master says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, the operative word here is that it's dying. If it doesn't die, if it doesn't fall to the earth, go into the ground, if it doesn't die, if it doesn't do that, it will remain alone. And alone would imply you're not in covenant. You... Um, uh, you couldn't access the life. You couldn't reproduce. You can't make fruit. Um, if you're a grain, a piece of wheat, you know, wheat, it's got to reproduce itself. So um, there's that word, it remains alone. Like, what does that have to do with dying? You think, um, we, we wouldn't normally think of that in those terms. So clearly there's metaphoric language going on here. And that's going to have big implications for us as a community. So only when the grain or flesh dies can the fruit or new life happen. And that, when it's applied to the community, uh, gives us a sense of this, uh, why our flesh has to die or we will be alone. We won't be able to operate within community. And that is very significant. Now, John 6, um, 53, John chapter 6, verse 53 also, we're going to add to this understanding. And we're going to now then blend the two metaphors and see the picture that's presented. The Messiah says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. So we see that flesh, blood, and the life uh, uh, metaphor going on here, both in the symbolic sense and the literal sense. Uh, both are true at the same time. It's it, it, um. Now, as we begin to get these multiple metaphors, we're going to see the picture that the ancient Near Eastern individual is going to see. 
and that is that in God's temple or tabernacle, the um, some of the offerings, they were able to consume the flesh. So you're able to eat or partake of the death element. So we have to die with him. We can partake of that element. But the blood went on the altar. So from the ancient Near Eastern perspective, the life presented is presented to God and it's but it's returned to the earth it's put out poured out on the altar it's not consumed by the offer so they're not receiving the life from the animal sacrifice nor are they receiving it there's in other words uh, the blood is forbidden to Israel so there's no exchange of life in the ancient Near Eastern mindset of blood covenanting Uh, something is lacking and so that paints a very important picture that when are we going to consume the life? How are we going to have eternal life? We're not able to consume the blood. Uh, we're not partaking in that. And so from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, that's very significant. And we know Hebrews 10, 1 through 3 and 11 make that clear that there was no taking away of sins through these sacrifices because you're not gaining the life. You're able to participate in the death, but not the life. Symbolically and metaphorically speaking. Nor could the ancient Near Eastern mind uh, gain life from consuming the blood of a sinner. A sinner can only reproduce after itself, and we see Paul talking about that. Um, So even if you consume the blood of another sinner, he can only reproduce death, and you're just going to die. But there is going to be a blood uh, and a flesh that you can consume, and and those are metaphoric terms. He's speaking metaphorically, um, but he's speaking in the language of the ancient Near East. And so we're going to see that that life exchange and what he's talking about, what he really means. When we tie together the salted bread and the animal flesh blood, um, which are interchangeable, now when we start to blend the metaphors and we see that these are, they have the same meaning because meaning pre-exists words and words are just various vehicles that express a meaning, that the meaning is the same, but the words may be different. And, but they're interchangeable. And when they're interchangeable, now we can better understand the meaning. So the salted bread and the animal flesh blood, then when we realize those are equivalent, then we could say if we eat his flesh, um, flesh is also likened to bread. And so to, and bread is likened to his teaching. So if we accept his teaching, his instruction, and we drink his blood, we enter into a covenant and we obtain the life of the victim, if you will, in the ancient Near Eastern method of understanding that, then we're, we're able to consume the life. Now, the blood is connected to salt. So if we eat the flesh, the death, the Torah, but we leave out the blood, we don't drink his blood, we don't ha- add the salt, now we have a false picture. And that's what those that Messiah was criticizing of the Pharisees that he was criticizing, they were not adding the salt to that picture. And uh, it's, it's going to be important. Now, 2 Timothy 2.11 says, For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we die, if the flesh dies literally or, and figuratively, um, then we will also live with him. This is where the double entendre on um, the community implications come to mind because we have to we physically die and we will physically be resurrected but there's a sense in which 
we are going to be called to do what he did and experience a different kind of emotional death that he experienced. And we will experience emotional life when we are in freedom, when we are able to do that. And that has the community implications, doing unto the least of these implications. Now, if we go back to John 6.53, and we look at that eating the flesh, and we understand that as the flesh can be likened to bread, and we understand that eating, drinking his blood, and blood can be likened to salt, now we see the necessity of adding the blood or adding the salt, not just eating his flesh. Um, what's interesting is that the Jewish encyclopedia says the following, eating the salt of a man means, therefore, to derive one's sustenance from him, to take pay from him, or to be hired by him. Clearly, they are not trying to support Messiah's statements in the, in the scriptures, in the apostolic scriptures. But, man, this is significant because to eat the salt of a man means to derive one's sustenance from him. So when they say, when, when the Messiah says, eat, drink my blood, you're deriving one's sustenance from him and eating his bread, you're accepting his teaching and you are accepting the salt and the salt as we know and we will see is the mercy it's the chesed if we have the if we have the torah without the chesed without the salt then or the blood the mercy of god then we neglect to have the covenant of god and to have covenantal action this is what is so significant this also implies taking pay from him and being hired by him. And we know we are his hired servants and we know these other metaphors. And we could ferret those out, but we're going to move on. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. We have to be that mercy of the earth. Uh, but if the salt, the mercy of the earth has become tasteless, then how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. By men, if our Torah observance is lacking in mercy, then it's no good. It's just might as well throw the flesh out for the dogs to consume because now you're just dead walking bones. So what preceded, though, the context of Matthew 5.13, this you are the salt of the earth? This is what's going to be exceedingly significant and we're going to need to understand. And what we're going to find is that it is a, it is a, from chapter 5, verse 2 to 12, it is a chiastic structure. And lo and behold, the center of that chiasm is the blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, chesed, loving kindness, that those other, the three terms that we, we looked at, chanun and rachum, that kindness, compassion, and mercy, and chesed. And if we don't have kindness, compassion, mercy, and chesed in our Torah walk, then we are not going to bless anyone, and we are not going to receive blessing. Okay? We will be self-righteous, and we will be, we will be receiving the woe to those. And what we'll see is that in Luke 6, 20 through 45, the same parallel passage of the Matthew 5 passage uh, with the, these are called the Beatitudes uh, within Christendom, 
um, the blessed are you who he uses, Luke uses a parallelism. So he, so whereas Matthew uses a chiasm to bring forth the truth and he has a specific purpose and his next verse in verse 13 is where Messiah says, you are the salt of the earth and he's expounding and, and building us up on what that is going to mean. Then we have Luke who's has a different purpose. So he's writing, but he's bringing up this story and he's crafting it in a little bit different way because he's uh, talking about a little bit other different things. Well, now he's using it in a parallelism. And so what I want you to do is you'll grab your Bible and you'll turn when, when this teaching is over and go to Matthew 5, 2 through 12, and you're going to map that out and you're going to have A through uh, D on the parallels and then you're going to have E, the center of your chiasm, is going to be the merciful statement. And then you're going to see how the poor in spirit are defined by a prime. You who, blessed are, are those who um, are in, people insult and per, who, who persecute you and are fal- people who say false things against you because of me. And it's be the because of me that is so significant that we need to look at here because the poor in spirit and the being insulted, you're not just being insulted because you're being not wise or you're, or it's just anything random. It's because of Messiah that you are insulted or because of Messiah that you people are being unkind or, or saying evil things against you or whatnot. Um, same with number two, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, that would be B, and B prime then is described, it's not just you had something bad happen and you're mourning about it, but you're mourning because you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. We lament, we moan, we mourn, and we could be, we'll be comforted for uh, the persecution that we receive. And then we have blessed are the gentle, that would be C in the chiastic structure. And it would be defined as not just gentle or meek or something to that effect, but the gentle are the peacemakers so we understand gentle to mean a peacemaker and then we have d blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness well d prime is the pure in heart so someone who's pure in heart is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and then we have uh, the the consuming metaphors and we could we could track those Uh, but the center of that chiastic structure is the merciful blessed are the merciful that'll be e the center of the chiasm those who receive mercy. So when we go to Luke's passage then, and we see that that is set up in a parallelism, it is very different because it says um, it's making a contrast now. So it's going to contrast the blessed from the woe to those, uh, those who hear and those who are deaf. So those who hear are those who are going to be blessed are those who are uh, poor for the sake of of the son of man. If you're poor because you did something, let's say you lost your job because of the sake of the son of man, uh, because of your faith, because of some kind of belief, or you're hungry because of something to do with Messiah that you are standing firm in your faith, then that is very, um, that is a very specific thing versus just being poor in general or being hungry in general. Um, but you're being poor or hungry or weeping, um, or, men hate you, ostracize, insult, or scorn you, you're, if they're doing those things, if you're enduring those things for the sake of your faith, because you're walking in by faith and you're obeying the commandments, then that is, um, uh, you are blessed. That is going to be contrasted 
by the woe statements then. So we've got A through E statements of blessed are you who, and then we have A through E of woe to those, woe to the rich. Then we have uh, that. Now notice A and A uh, prime, you have uh, blessed are you who are poor, paralleling with A prime, which is uh, woe to the rich. Um, They're receiving their comfort now. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we're doing the contrast because we recognize this as a parallelism, then we're seeing that if you are rich because you're forsaking Messiah and you're not willing to let go of the riches in order to stand for truth, then you're receiving your comfort now, but woe to you. Uh, it's not going to look good later on. But if you're poor now for the sake of the kingdom and you forsake um what you could have now for the sake of truth and the son of man and your faith in God and, and walking in faithfulness, then that is a very different thing. And so you'll roll through each of the blessed are you who statements, and then look at the woes and they'll contrast poor to the rich hunger to the well-fed weeping to those who laugh, uh, men who hate ostracize, insult and scorn you or woe to the man whom all speak well. It doesn't mean we don't want to have everyone speak well of us, but if you are not willing to stand up for truth and maybe be hated, ostracized, or insulted because you are willing to compromise that truth um, and, and the message of Messiah so that men will speak well of you, woe to you. And we notice that there in, in the line E, it says it was the way that uh, blessed are those who... Um, did all these things for the sake of the Son of Man, they are being treated as the prophets. And that is contrasted to the woe statements in which in line E prime then would be um, those are who were treated, uh, how they treated the false prophets. Now, I don't have time to get into, but you'll want to go look at uh, in Matthew, in the Matthew 5 passage where it sp- speaks of blessed are those who are merciful You'll notice that the there's three major terms that are going to come together in those statements um, in the Septuagint. And we have Chanun, we have Rahum, and we have Chesed. And all three, when you look up uh, merciful in the Septuagint they're of Chanun, they're all going to be um, showing up together. And Chesed, the loving kindness in particular, is in this word for merciful in the Matthew passage in the Greek is translated into the Septuagint in uh, Proverbs 20, verse 6. And then it follows a blessed our statement in verse 7, as a matter of fact. Um, but I'm going to have to move on, so we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, now, Matthew 5.13, then when he says, you are the salt of the earth, then uh, we need to remember these statements. And we will note also that... Um, in the Jewish encyclopedia, they say um, a reference to salt as a preservative is made in the proverb, shake the salt off meat and you may throw the latter to the dogs. That is to say, without salt, meat is good for nothing. So meat, flesh and bread here can be all combined. And there's an oriental proverb that's noted by uh, Clay Trumbull when he states, if those if thou takest the salt or the life or the soul from the flesh, 
the body, in other words, then thou may throw it, the flesh, to the dogs. And we had made mention of that. If you're missing the salt from your Torah observance, um, which is the mercy, the, the life, the soul, then you are missing the mercy, the life, the soul from the commandments as well. And then your commandments are nothing more than you might as well throw them to the dogs. That There's no meat there. If you, um, There's no true true food there, in other words. If you have no salt or life in yourself, what good is your flesh or body then? It's, you're just a soulless, lifeless person uh, bound in your sin still uh, because you've not received the life and you're not walking in that. So when the salt then, the life, becomes corrupt, what with what is it to be salted? Um, and this is in one of the uh, Jewish sources, one of the rabbis uh, speaking of this. When salt becomes corrupt then... The salt, they say in the Jewish Encyclopedia, of money is charity. So the term salted is applied to a man in the sense also of quick-minded. So if salt is to money charity, then that's where we see the mercy and the chesed of God and the significance and the importance of adding that mercy and that chesed to our offerings. So with your bread, your Torah observance, you cannot neglect to add the salt, to add the mercy. Um, if we don't, then we are missing the big picture. Join me at fordiswritten.com. Again, fordiswritten.com.